Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Shahidi, and this is the Evoke 20-Minute Market Outlook podcast, where we share our thoughts about the current economic and market environment. Thank you for joining us today, and please feel free to visit our website at evokeadvisors.com for a PDF version of our quarterly outlook and to learn more about our firm. Welcome to the fourth quarter quarterly market outlook. I'm Alex Shahidi, co-CIO of Evoke Advisors, and today I'm joined by Damien Bisserier, the other co-CIO, and Senior Vice President Michael Marco. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Alex. Why don't we start with the topic that is hitting the headlines today, which is interest rates. Uh, it seems like the only thing that really matters is what the Fed is going to do in terms of market returns. Damien, why don't we start with you in terms of what's what's your perspective about uh, you know the major forces at play today? The recent rate rise is really part of a longer term story that began last year. And it's this historic tightening that we've been living through as a response to the surge in inflation we experienced uh, post-pandemic. That tightening has occurred in three distinct phases in our view. The first was the initial response to the inflation uh, by the Federal Reserve where they raised rates from 0% to now five and a quarter to five and a half percent. That was uh, really something the market adjusted to during the first three quarters of 2022. And as the market adjusted to the reality of higher cash rates, all assets repriced, we saw historical losses in many asset classes, particularly bonds, uh, the the place where most people keep their safe money, the Barclays Aggregate Index was down over 14% in those first three quarters. The global stock market was down over 25%. There was really outside of commodities, nowhere to hide. Then starting in Q4 of last year, you started to see inflation pressures subside a bit. Inflation prints came in lower and the market started to react to the hope of a Fed pivot or a quick return to a lower interest rate regime. And if you looked at the discounting in interest rate markets, you saw an expectation that rates would quickly fall after they reached uh, those peaks. That was uh, further supported by SVB's collapse, Silicon Valley Bank's collapse in uh, Q1 of this year. And the regional banking problems more broadly led people to expect a financial crisis. And so you had at one point an expectation the Fed would even start to ease this year. In Q2 and Q3, that easing has come out of the market, that that expected easing has come out of the market. And you've seen a big move in longer term yields as a function of that. And that, in our view, has been really the third phase of the tightening. Uh, It in many ways resembles the first phase in the sense that it is uh, a headwind for all assets. Uh, When when you raise the expected return on cash for longer, you know we view this as a higher for longer type of discounting. When you're seeing the entire interest rate yield curve move up, and those longer term rates are now much closer to the short term rates, really reflecting that those rates will stay elevated for an extended period of time. And that's essentially what the Fed wants. You know, they they would like the markets to believe that they will continue to be tough on inflation because inflation is their priority for the time being. And that's easy to do while growth is still resilient. And inflation, while it's come down, has settled into that 
uh, three and a half, four percent range, so well above their two percent target. And so it continues to be a priority for them to be tough on inflation. The big question in our minds, and it's been a question throughout this tightening cycle, is when will this tightening flow through to the real economy? We can squint and see evidence of some slowdown here and there, but in general, it's been a prolonged transmission from that tightening to the economy. We do think that this rise in long-term yields does increase the likelihood that we may see a material slowdown uh, over the coming quarters. Clearly, tightening is a challenging environment for most assets. But when we zoom out a little bit and look at where interest rates have gone from historic lows a couple of years ago to levels that we haven't seen in 15 to 20 years, uh, how much longer can this tightening last, Michael? Um, yeah, it's a good question, Alex, and a good point. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, when we look back at history, the most relevant analog is the Volcker tightening of the late 70s, early 80s. By our estimates, when we look at uh, the inflation-adjusted interest rate, so how truly tight is monetary policy, that tightening seemed to last about two years. Um, and we seem to be coming up on, on that point now. So at least that's a kind of historical frame of reference. Ultimately, what drives assets is how policy unfolds relative to expectations. And right now, expectations are higher for longer. They are for relatively tighter policy. And so we would expect that if things unfold as expected from to the extent that those things should drive assets, the return impact would be pretty muted going forward. Um, if the economy deteriorates much more rapidly than expected, we would expect uh, the Fed to respond accordingly to the extent it can. Ultimately, I think the goal of the Fed as it's you know painstakingly communicated is to get inflation in line, as Damien mentioned. And to do that, it's going to keep interest rates uh, as tight as it feels that it needs to until it really visibly starts to see that in the data. And so that's both looking at the inflation data and the growth data to the extent that those things may be correlated. When you start to see, I mean, I think we're already starting to see inflation come down. Um, the most recent inflation prints for core CPI are running at, you know, even though the year-over-year -year rate is in the threes, the, you know, shorter-term annualized rate is now back into the twos um, or even lower than that we're seeing indications that inflation really is coming down and really is coming in line that has the potential to give the Fed more room to pause um, than it might have had, you know, say six months ago. So, you know, hopefully we're, we're at the tail end of this. And, you know, even if rates stay where they are, um, that isn't necessarily bearish for bond prices anymore because that's what the markets are already pricing in. Uh, I think ultimately we'll just have to see, you know, how growth and inflation unfold. And the, the Fed has said that it's going to be pretty attuned to, um, you know, the data as it comes in. The other thing that I think could drive a potential Fed pivot is if you get a significant market collapse. So you may not see it in the data yet, but there could be a circumstance where you see a big drop in equity markets, for instance, which could cause a, a Fed pivot. Certainly in this environment, it's dangerous because you have such a tight environment from a liquidity perspective with interest rates high and the Fed not being supportive as they normally do as the economy slows. 
it creates a very challenging backdrop for credit where it's difficult to get loans. It's difficult to pay for loans. Uh, it's difficult to refinance loans that are maturing. And that applies across the economy. So if you look at household sector, mortgages, corporate sector, and so we do think the risks are heightened for a you know a, a, a more volatile market environment going forward. And uh, we do also believe that the tightening that's happened to date, which is as aggressive as anything we've seen in the last 50 years, will likely have an impact on growth that is more pronounced than what it's had thus far. And I think one data point that's interesting is over the last 40 years until recently, we've either been in a falling interest rate environment or a zero or near zero interest rate environment. And for the first time, we're potentially in a rising interest rate environment or higher rate environment. And it's hard to know exactly what the impact of all that's going to be. And it takes time to flow through. Um, as you mentioned, you have loans that are not able to be refinanced. If you think about the last 40 years, anytime there was trouble, you could refinance your loans at a lower rate. And that game may be ending. It's very possible that cycle has turned. Um, and these things are very obvious in hindsight when you look backwards, but when you're living through it, it's hard to know where those inflection points are. To this point, we've described a challenging market environment uh, given the significant move in interest rates over a relatively short period of time. Yet the S&P 500 seems to shrug that off and is doing relatively well. What do you make of that? The SP 500 has been a bit of an outlier in terms of its very strong performance this year. It's up over 13% through the end of Q3. And that's largely been driven by the largest constituents, uh, the large cap tech companies that have benefited from all of the enthusiasm around artificial intelligence this year. If you actually look at the broader equity markets beyond those uh, large cap tech companies, uh, many constituents of the S&P 500 are flat or down on the year. Small caps are uh, now down on the year. Uh, many international markets like emerging markets are down on the year. So it has not been as bullish of a picture more broadly, but nonetheless, uh, you know that that market has done surprisingly well. And, and it's really been a very strong 14-year period for the S&P 500. We, of course, allocate to the SP 500. You know, U.S. stocks continues to be a large portion of what what we do in client portfolios. But we we do think it's critically important for investors to remain diversified. There are environments like a slower growth environment, a higher inflation environment that can be very challenging for uh, equity markets. And uh, and there's just a lot of optimism baked into the current pricing within U.S. equity markets that leaves, in our view, less margin for error. So given this challenging backdrop, particularly the impact that the Fed has had on asset class returns, how should investors think about uh, investing in this type of environment and how should they think about diversifying? Well, there is some silver lining to the pain we've experienced. It's been a big adjustment to get to a point where asset classes offer you much more attractive forward-looking returns. And you see that most directly in things like the bond market, where a long-term treasury maybe yielded 1% or 2% a couple of years ago, and now you can get nearly 5%. That's a big difference. You can lock in 5% for 30 years. That is a rate that's above the current inflation rate and the discounted inflation rate over 30 years. So you're getting what's called a real return from bonds for the first time in many years. And if you think about the risks on the horizon as a function of this Fed response, we do think the risks of a recession are heightened. And so 
not only can you get higher returns out of assets than you used to, but I think the benefit of diversification still exists. And I think you're compensated for those diversifying assets in a way that you haven't for a long time. So we still believe that diversification matters across public assets, even though it's been a difficult uh, period you know, where you haven't seen much diversification across assets, as we just talked about, they've sort of shared that same sensitivity to, to the Fed response. But looking forward, we do think that you're likely to get an economic flow through of all this tightening and that whether it's, you know, higher inflation or lower growth, that having things outside of equities that can diversify and protect you in those environments is still important. And I'd say those things are a lot easier to hold today than they were, you know, a couple of years ago because of the the different return profile. And Damien, you mentioned something that I think it's worth highlighting, and that is diversification isn't dead. I think a lot of people look back over the last, you know, almost two years and said diversification didn't work. You know, everything went up together, down together, up together, down together. How does diversification help you there? I think it's important to talk through when we say diversification, what we mean. And uh, and I think it's important to distinguish between long-only public markets and alternatives. Uh, so Michael, would you spend a few minutes talking through that? Sure. So you know, when we think about diversification at the portfolio level, we like to divide it up into public markets and private markets. And on the public market side, in general, we you know we look at the world, we see three main drivers of asset class performance over time: growth surprises, inflation surprises, and the third is cash surprises. So how attractive is cash versus uh, expectations, how monetary policy unfolds? And the dominant driver that we've seen over the past couple of years has been monetary tightening, much tighter monetary policy and higher cash rates than markets ever expected. Um, that's you know a pretty rare kind of an environment. The last comparable environment that we've seen has was in the early '80s in the Volcker era, um, and those periods tend to be short-lived. And it's important to not lose sight um, of the kind of critical balance that you need in a portfolio between rising and falling growth assets, rising and falling inflation assets, basically assets that will do well regardless of the kind of outcome we have, especially at a time when there's so much uncertainty around those outcomes. Um, so we think having balance between assets that will perform differently in different environments is important on the public side. So that's the public market side, where we feel that it's a more efficient space and the returns are by and large driven by the economic environments that Michael described. Let's switch gears to the private market side. Uh, Damon, would you walk us through that? So on the private side, we seek to identify managers that can take advantage of a lot of the volatility and distress that that is existing in markets, and we expect to accelerate over the cycle, whether that's through shorting or investing in certain uh, inefficient asset classes where uh, you can uh, take advantage of inefficiently run businesses, inefficiently run properties, uh, lending uh, to uh, areas of the economy where there's a shortage of liquidity. There are a lot of opportunities on that private side, which we think can be less uh, dependent on a good market environment, in fact, can actually benefit from a tougher market environment and can be a great diversifier relative to public markets. 
Damien, uh, Michael, thank you for your uh, comments as usual. And I look forward to speaking again next quarter. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening to the Evoke 20-Minute Market Outlook podcast produced by Evoke Advisors. If you have questions, feel free to email us at info at evokeadvisors.com. And if you enjoy the discussion, please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would also enjoy listening. This quarterly podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Mm -hmm.